Welcome everybody to the Faking Notes podcast. Quick little solo intro. We hope you liked last week's episode with Anthony McGill. It was awesome. A boss. Principal clarinetist, the New York Phil. Spider expert. Meditation expert. Uh, this guy's still practicing. He's got an awesome backstory. Most famously played in Obama's 2008 inauguration. And we've loved season three so far. We're getting some awesome guests. Uh, but one of our most exciting things and why we wanted to make sure we were going to do this for the second episode is our Faking Fam features, where we interview our listeners, our Faking Fam. What are they up to? Who are they? And this week, we've got Kaylee Clark. Kaylee's awesome, and it's an awesome conversation. She's teaching at an international school in Sweden, in Stockholm, way, way uh, across the pond. And it's a really interesting discovery and conversation about what it's like to learn a new area, to actually accomplish your dreams. International schools, what exactly are they? And is that a good path for you to see the world, to teach, and to grow? Um, how to teach grit to younger students, some of the different methods for teaching music to kids in, in their primary school education. We wrap it up with a little bit of grad school. Drew and I's thoughts, Kaylee's thoughts about how you should approach this. Should you do it? Is it right for you? So stay tuned to the end uh, to figure out more about that. This is a bika, where it's a Swedish tradition which is where you make time for friends over coffee. And so I love the concept. I'm always down for coffee and friends in the Swedish tradition. Uh, the easiest way to become in the, our next Faking Fam feature is to join us on our Discord, where we've already got an active community starting to thrive. We just launched it recently, and we've got all these channels. It's a great way to talk to Drew and I, and we can actually learn who you are. We get to have our own little Faking Fam features in there. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon. Just look up Faking Notes Podcast on Patreon. And that's how you can best directly support us. But enough of me. Let's hear from you, the listeners, in one of our features. Kaylee Clark. Enjoy. All right, here we go. Our first official Zencaster. Man, <laughs> Kaylee Clark. Welcome Kaylee to Clark. Faking Us Podcast. Thank you so much. How are you I'm, I'm so excited to be here. This is so fun. We're so excited to have you here. And and it's been a minute. We're, we've been both very busy, but we love doing these Faking Fan features. One of our favorite aspects of doing what we do, connecting with our listeners in real time. And it's just not every day we get to holler at the people that listen to us talk shit into their eardrums <laughs> on a weekly basis. I just wanted to start out because we are endlessly curious about the types of people that listen to us. I'm really curious. What is like a typical day in your life look like? I know you're a cellist um, and I know you're in, you're in Sweden right now, right? Yeah. Am I I'm in Sweden. I'm in Stockholm right yeah. now. Stockholm. Wow. Woo. Yeah. Stockholm syndrome or not? Nah. Okay, you're good. Blink twice. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what a typical day in your life looks like? Yeah. So I'm a music teacher at one of the international schools in Stockholm. I teach music to middle schoolers, grades four through nine. So I wake up, I get on the train. I listen to the pod is going on my 45, 50 minute commute to school. Solid. It's a good, really good way to start the day. 
actually. So I, I get to teach general music to fourth through ninth graders, like the whole range, 10 to 15 year olds. It's good fun, uh, but exhausting. So then I come home at the end of the day, listen to the pod again, and just do my other little things that I have to do. Yeah. Well, it's wow. like a huge, that's a huge age range. It is huge. So a lot of the times I'm teaching a class of fourth graders and then five minutes later, a class of 15 year old ninth graders. So I'm jumping from like, happy fun, Miss Clark to, all right, well, now it is time that we do this. I'm very professional, <laughs> like collegiate professor. So it's two opposite ends. Oh, it is a jump. That's got to be really yeah. difficult, too, because just from a lesson planning perspective, because I know for many people, if you're just teaching at college. Yes, there's differences between the various ages, but some stuff's going to translate well. Uh, you can approach 15-year-olds like seven-year-olds. It's just no. not remotely in the same ballpark. No, How do you prepare doing, all that? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well not uh, treating the... 15 year olds like they're 10 but occasionally i'll slip back and treat the 10 year olds like they're 15 so then i have to like recognize them and be like oh no okay go back to bouncing around and uh literally bouncing around uh yeah and switch it up so luckily a lot of my ninth graders are very independent so they're doing a lot of independent projects so i introduce the project we go over what the expectations are we do our other class things and they are so independent. They get right to work and they create some really amazing stuff. So it's a lot of putting Wait, them independently. Can you describe the type of teaching you do? So you're, are you an orchestra teacher? Yeah, it's very different because the Swedish curriculum is not performance-based. So I grew up in American public schools where we had elementary general music until fifth grade. And then once you get to middle high school, you choose your chorus band orchestra and that's about it. But in Sweden, you are taking general music until you graduate. And then if you go on to high school, then you can choose whatever you want. But it's not very performance based. So we don't perform a lot. It is very much like general music. So there's a lot of composing. There's a lot of uh, theory, a lot of playing instruments, but not in an ensemble setting. So we're doing like guitars, piano, ukulele singing a lot of all the stuff that you don't get to do uh, in an orchestra or in a chorus and band. So it's very different than how I was brought up. I kind of like that. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like now that you're teaching one system and growing up in another system, pros and cons. Yeah, I've, I've been going through this list for a while. So there's a lot of pros, the fact that I can do other things. So there's a lot of opportunity for songwriting, for composing, for doing classroom instruments that you don't really normally get to, like ukuleles, piano, guitar, all that sort of thing. When you're 10 years old, it's so fun. But then I do miss the performance aspect because I miss being in an orchestra. I miss like leading an orchestra. I do miss that performative aspect. So I we try our best with having like after school clubs, try and fit it in our schedule. So we have choir after school starting an orchestra next year. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But a lot of our students actually take private lessons after school. So yeah, it's really nice. I have a few instrumentalists in uh, my classes and then there's plenty of kids who like music isn't their thing and they come to my class and they get to learn how to analyze or play piano or sing with their class, which we do every day. And it's good. Good fun. I really like that. It feels like that creates a lot of like really educated amateurs 
who can really understand the many different aspects that go into music. And what's really fundamentally different for me personally is growing up in the performative nature. So like performing is like not a big deal to me anymore, but like sitting down to write a piece of music or to analyze a piece of music, I just like it in a cold sweat. So it's interesting that you're introducing <laughs> them to that so young. Yeah, I try not to go too deep uh, into them. Like they're not analyzing Bach chorales at age 10. So we're not quite there, but they, yeah, it's been very different. I feel like I've embraced a lot of the new things because it is absolutely not what I grew up on because I grew up in elementary general music and then orchestra for the rest of my career. So it has been a huge change. And when I started my job, there was really no curriculum built. So me and my co-music teacher, who started at the exact same time as me, we were both first-year music teachers. We built our curriculum from scratch, just the two of us. So we had a lot of collaboration of what we wanted these kids to understand when they graduate from our school. So what can we do to give them between age 10 to 15? How can we build it, that whole progression? And it's really nice that we have that collaboration. So we get along really well and we can tie those pieces together. I really like that. I think that's something that fits in with the American system to where just like athletics, you're not really learning when you're there about your body and, and proper nutrition. It's okay. Like you're going in there, you're there to practice shooting the three. You focus in on the like narrow aspects of the craft. It's not like when you go to a, a basketball school and you're going in there, they're not putting you in ballet like the movies or saying they're not yeah. having you like learn tap or something to get better at it. That's really just what how it works in movies. Only until you get to the professional level to where you're in the NBA, are they like, wait a minute, this needs to be more wholesome. You need to learn how to play like golf. You need to do yoga. You need to stand in cryotherapy, freeze your body and do all these things where they become more wholesome. But so much of the current system is just get really good at the thing, shoot the three pointer. Yeah. And in music, the same thing, get really good at the instrument, play in tune, do all this. But yet, we don't really learn in that gap, that middle school through high school and even into college for the most part. We don't really like talk about music. It's you're playing, preparing for the next competition, yeah. preparing for the next marching band show. And I really, I, I miss that. You're learning some nice, wholesome things at a surface level in elementary school. And then they just stop and say, okay, you understand music now. Here's the clarinet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then I also miss the fact that you can master something. So we don't have that like mastery element because there's so much of music to do. You can't possibly master everything when you're in middle school. So we are missing that element because that's the element that I miss. So it, there are pros and cons to both. So you get a jack of all trades, but you become a master at something in the U.S. Interesting. One thing that I've been discovering just from mastery of the viola or just continuing to pursue mastery is that once you master one thing, you start seeing the same elements in everything. But I, I also think that having a diverse potpourri of exposure to many different elements can teach you a similar thing. The one thing it doesn't teach you is that grit of yeah. like really getting mm -hmm. through and struggling and making all the mistakes and, and being kind enough to yourself to allow yourself to retain that beginner's mindset. What do you do as a teacher? Or actually, I have a couple questions. My first one is, what are some aspects of yourself that you see in your kids that you maybe forgot about and are rediscovering? And like, how are you cultivating grit in your students? Well, those are really good questions. I feel like 
especially seeing myself and my students, the wanting to experiment and try a lot of things. So I grew up as a cellist, but then I also wanted to play double bass for a while. And then I did, but then I went back to cello. And then I wanted to do violin for a while, but then I went back to cello. It all just goes back to cello, apparently. So I wanted, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to try all these things. So my, I'm really happy that I am like giving students the opportunity to do new things because we do a different instrument uh, each year. And yeah. The, cre- the exploring part is what I see from my students, but the grit is actually a big thing that we've been missing. It's been a thing that we're talking about actually in our whole arts department because we're noticing that it's very much a trend with the education system here. Like we need to put a little bit more grit and have the students find those challenges for themselves. One of our school goals is actually to be challenged. So how do they feel mm. challenged in their classes? Because you have to find that perfect balance of this is not too difficult that I'm going to go insane, but also this is not too easy that I'm bored. You have to find that perfect middle ground of there's enough challenge for me to understand it and be interested, but not too much that I'm scared of it now. And that's actually one of our school goals that the students like are well aware of, and they need to be thinking about it constantly. Like, how am I being challenged in this element? How am I being challenged in math or uh, in PE, even if it's not my favorite subject and I think it's too challenging, what are my challenges rather than everybody else's? So it's been something we've been discussing in our music classes and hoping that they can recognize where they are being challenged in all of the things I'm throwing at them, where they can go from there. So they have to be really self-reflective at their age, which is a big ask for them. That's a huge ask. It's a big ask. (laughs) I don't think many adults do that. It's a big ask, but... They they do it really well. So if you give them the opportunity, something about the Swedish curriculum, every start of every school year, we have development talks for the students. It's not just the music students, it's everybody, where we sit down with the student, their parents, and me as their homeroom teacher. I'm a homeroom teacher for fourth graders. And I sit with them and we plan, what are your goals going to be for this term? What subject do you want to do better in? Which subject do you want more challenge in? How can you... Uh, embrace that challenge? How can your parents support you for this challenge? And how can I, as a teacher, help you reach the goals that you want to reach? We do this every term from when they're in first grade, I think. So they know, yeah, they know about this and they've been doing it for years and years. They've had a lot of practice at it. They've had a lot of practice at being self-reflective. So just throw it all at them, give them more practice, try it more. I'm just sitting with that. I'm sitting with that because I can't imagine asking a an American kid to sit down. So what do you want to do, Billy? What are your goals for your life, yeah. eight-year-old? <laughs> I've seen it successful in some models, but it's always seemed to be outside of schools, like an after-school program. It's called Very Young Composers. Specifically, the program is called Bridge, and it's part of the New York Phil, and I was there for a couple years. And it was an after-school program specifically for like fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, when all those young and fun music education programs for these young kids ends and it's okay it's time to learn an instrument it's time to get serious you know get serious about mm-hmm. music and we tried to create a program that took itself seriously but wasn't trying to have an end goal of this is college prep this is prep for performance arts high school it was meant for composers it was really meant to teach creativity and we got some excellent students in there and they really opened up And we're very reflective and we're very intelligent. But I think what was fascinating about that experience for me and watching these kids who were just absolutely incredible is that we'd ask for their opinions on things 
you can tell when they were first getting used to the program, they were like shocked. They're like, wait, I have a say. And when they did say something, we do it. The one thing I've at least noticed, like when teaching young kids is for me to treat them seriously and treat their ideas seriously. And by you showing that when they said, oh, I want the notes to go up here and I'm thinking about it like this, it's like I am trying to enact their ideas and say, hey, no, I'm doing what you said. There wasn't a right answer, a wrong answer. It's not multiple choice. You have agency in this and I'm listening to you. And I could see the people who first came into that program who then came back and back again. And I think that was what I at least noticed for me, providing agency and self-reflection in these students. And I hope that goes with them for the rest of their life. Because that's rare. We yeah. don't talk about that in the States. It's get good, get good at viola. I'm like, that's it. Yeah, do the thing, continue on. Uh, but it's so nice that you gave them the opportunity for them to be heard and feel like that they were heard. Yeah. So I think that was really awesome for them. And it's an experience that I think everybody needs to have. The students that I teach, they do these reflective development talks since they're so young. So I don't think they think it's a big deal, but I think it's a big deal. And all us adults think it's a big deal. This 10-year-old is coming up with his own opinions and planning for things. And also they give us 10-year-old answers because kids are kids. But I, I see this as a really great opportunity uh, for them. And I think once these kids get older, they will also realize the impact of, I did have a voice. I could plan the things. I had a say in what I was doing. What are some things you're doing to enact this bridge between super gritty performance-based and then more foundational music, like the breadth? Like, wh how, what are you trying to do and where do you see a happy point a happy medium between these? That's a really good question because we mentioned before that we're not studying one particular thing long enough and deep enough to have the grit on the one thing. I think their grit actually has to be their ability to be adaptable, to try new things and to experiment with other things and take those risks. Whether it's a good risk or a bad risk, you're not going to know until you try. So we do singing in our class uh, every single lesson, but it works out well. I already know people are, are laughing, but it works out well because this is a new risk for them. They're trying new things. I'm not asking them to be perfect. I'm not asking them to sing the right notes or with the right dynamics. I'm asking for them to try. And if you build that welcoming environment and the opportunity to give them the thought that they can take a risk, they will do it. And then they will come up with their own conclusions of what went well, what didn't go well. So I think uh, at least this year, I've been trying a lot with doing things that I'm not comfortable in, which is teaching singing, mm. which is teaching piano. But I have put in a lot of work so that I could make it more open and embracing because if I can take the things I'm not comfortable at and make it easy for my students who are also not comfortable at it, maybe we'll all have a good time together in class. And it works out. It's been working out really well. So I will take that as a little bit of pride for that one. The things that I've, the work I put into is paying off, which is nice. I love that. You should take pride in that. That's incredible. And it's weird. And Drew and I, as we talk about this uh, a lot <laughs> for hours and hours about having to Refamiliarize ourselves with being bad at stuff, with taking risks, with yeah. getting into that beginner's mindset because we've had it beaten out of us. You got to be great. And this is the path to get great and be great at this. And it's unacceptable to be bad, but then you have to be. You yeah. have to take that risk. You, ha you, you cannot start out great at anything. Exactly. <laughs> That's like, not how it works. I, I don't know. I saw an acronym once when I was in university that said fail is just. 
first attempt in learning. And that kind of stuck with me for a while because I, I failed many times. I failed the jury. I failed like so many things, but it's just like a first attempt at trying new things, taking more risks. Uh, I know it's cheesy and corny, but I, that has stuck with me no, for a while. No. That's yeah. bars. <laughs> first attempt in learning. Oh my God. Oh my God. That is amazing. Wow. That's so funny. This is so relevant to me personally, Kaylee, because I have been so resistant to production. Like I, I literally, I, I, I kid you not. It is so painful for me to be bad at production that I often just stop halfway through. I spent three hours the other night trying to, in Ableton, trying to take a soul sample that I found on YouTube and trying to line it up and flex it so it lines up with the grid so I can sample it and like mess around with it later to make an eight bar loop. But it took me three hours to do that. And every moment was excruciating. I felt so dumb. I felt so bad. And then what's so interesting is as soon as I pick up my viola, I don't feel like a failure anymore, which is hilarious because it's like, I'm not a failure when I'm learning something. But no, I think we just get, not. we just get, but you know, society really teaches if you're bad yeah. at something and especially if you're bad at it publicly and you do it publicly and people make fun of you, it's, it stings, it, it hurts. And middle school is brutal. Oh my. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you see people being mean to each other? And how does that make you feel? I've seen them be mean outside my class a lot in the beginning when I just started because they're middle schoolers. They want to test the waters, but they've come to recognize that. They cannot be mean to each other because they are all experiencing things that every single person is going to find something they're uncomfortable with. And if you make fun of somebody for being uncomfortable in that situation, then they will just turn it right back to you. And you don't want to feel that way either. So I try to come down on it hard as soon as I see it or hear it. Yeah. Incredible. Middle school, middle school is brutal. Oh, my God. Middle school days were oh not great. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem like it's improving. At least with this other generation. And there's, as we know, with social media, there's a, there's a lot of downside as far as like self-perception and spending too much time on technology. And then suddenly, not only do you have to be cool to your classmates, you have to be cool to the world and you need YouTube subscribers. Yeah. So, Yo, you're 13. You need to chill. You just need to be you, figure it out. But I will say, at least over time, the more and more I interact with middle schoolers, and it's been two, three years since I was teaching that age group but it instilled hope because they looked a lot better than what i remember growing up with middle schoolers <laughs> and even high schoolers wow like they're starting to self-regulate yeah. and i think that's something they learned from social media they got to peek into others lives in ways that they couldn't have before mm -hmm. and they realized that it's a numbers game and that now that everyone knows it's a little more open source that you can't you, it's really hard to get away with being a bully. That's true. Because everyone else can gang up on you. So I'm at least noticing that self-regulation uh, a little bit more. And I think that's one of the positive spins from social media for that age group. I agree with that. And I also think that, especially with some of the social media platforms, like some of the students will try and push the boundaries on what it means to be a bully. And they're sneaky about it. But it's, it's less in your face. It's more in the sneaky level, but a lot of, there's a lot of positivity and a lot of things that I see that these middle schoolers that are doing really well and they blow my mind every single day. I'm, 
I'm so in awe of the little things that they do. And it just reflects me back to middle school. I'm like, I definitely did not think that way when I was in middle school. I was wearing colorful clothes and sweatpants and thinking I was so cool with the cello because uh, I was third chair in the middle school orchestra. But these kids, wow, they're going to change the world someday. They're changing the world now. Greta Thunberg, she's changing the world now. Oh, oh. my God. Love Greta. Yes. Shout out. We got a lot of stuff. We want to have a planet that's inhabitable for our people in the future. We got it. We all have, it's all hands on deck, I believe as well. But what's really fundamental and one thing that I think you're touching on, Kaylee, is they're standing on your shoulders. So it's, it's not like they're starting from zero. Like the work that you've done and that you're doing and continuing to do is feeding them and accelerating their growth in a way. And so you are changing the world as a teacher. And I hope you do realize that. Don't make me cry. Oh, my gosh. Um, Don't cry. It's okay. <laughs> you can, I mean, you can cry. You can cry. You can tell We're cry. crying positive here on the Faking Notes podcast. That was not what it was uh, intended to do. I'm curious. I saw you went to the University of Southern Maine. Is that correct? Yeah, in uh, Portland, Maine. Well, music school Portland. was in Gorham, Maine, but we'll take Portland. Gorham. I went to go. I went to Bowdoin my, right before I went to college. Nice. So for a festival, yeah. for summer festival. So I'm familiar with the vibe. It's dope. It's, it's a great vibe. It's very chill. A lot of people are like, Maine's a state? Isn't that part of Canada? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so many people are doing Isn't that. Canada? Isn't that part of Canada? Yeah. Um, Is that Canada? You don't know how many times I've gotten it, but there's a beautiful music scene there and a beautiful jazz scene there and a beautiful folky jazz vibe. And it's awesome because I grew up in like classical heavy world and actually Drew you're I was actually so surprised saying that hearing that you said that producing and recording stuff was a struggle for you because that was actually what got me out of my classical world because I started watching your Instagram videos because I saw you were on JHM Jams one of his earlier videos Ken shout out Ken Kubota yeah I watched a video as I was starting university which is like peak like finding your yourself as a musician, where do you want to go? I was all classical. And then I saw that you could do so many different things with a classical instrument. And then I was like, that's a dope field player. I'm going to follow him on Instagram. And then I just went, no. <laughs> and I just been watching and listening to the cool <laughs> new things you're creating. And it got me out of my classical vibe. And then I started a folk band with some friends in my last year at university and took what you were teaching me through your videos. You didn't even notice that because this is the first time we've connected, but it, it got me out of my classical vibe and to try new things and to just experiment and play around with it and see what happens. So yeah, I, I have to take what you said to me and send it back to you because a lot of it is what <laughs> you have done. <laughs> Anyways, it's my fangirl moment. <laughs> I want I want to really sincerely receive that and thank you so much. Like it, it, when we were doing it, Ken and I talk about it a lot. But it was pretty much his brainchild. It was something that I'd always wanted to do, but was way too afraid to do. And I was always surrounded by classical people who were just who would never do that. But Ken, being brave enough to just start a thing himself yeah. and start his own brand, it gave me permission to like 
oh my gosh, this guy is like me. And I feel that I resonate with that. Nathan Chan was there and, and, and so many more of our fellow friends. Now Ken with Empire Wild, just growing and, and winning competitions and getting funding. And, and it's so great to see how it comes to fruition. I, I'm really curious because you went to school in Maine and you had this, the, the jazzy folk vibe. You started this band. But then you went to Stockholm, Sweden. I'm missing something. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a, a missing puzzle piece in there. So I have... Yeah, can you fill it in? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try and find the missing piece. So I've always wanted to like travel abroad and just go where, go to the start of the music community, which to me is Vienna, Vienna, Austria. That's where a lot of the classical... Yeah, the classical people have started... Uh, Schubert, Schumann, and uh, Beethoven was Mozart. Everybody like Schoenberg was there. Oh my God! Like it, it's a heart for classical music. So I needed to go, and I found this summer program in university that let me study there for about six weeks, which is really not that long of a time. But when you're there, it's a long time. So I studied. Music history, love music history. And that was the perfect place for it. And performance, which was not my cup of tea because I'm more of a teacher, more of a community. Uh, I don't perceive myself as a performer, but I guess I, I am a performer. But I would, yeah, rather teach than perform solo or on my own. But I was in Austria for six weeks and I was rooming with six people and one of them became my best friend. She had the same thoughts and goals as me. We hung out all the time. We studied. She's a soprano. So we did a couple things together and uh, she became my best friend long distance after we had left the program, went back to the United States. We kept in touch forever. And then she got an opportunity to come to Stockholm because she graduated early and she works for an international school teaching music. <laughs> and since there's a lot of international schools in Stockholm, she helped me start the process find a position as well. And then we had our goal of living in Europe with a balcony teaching music. And we've been doing that for two wow. years, which is great. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Ta-da. Congrats. Wow. Could you, you describe what exactly an international school is? Because it's a very great avenue for yeah. teachers of all things, not just music. Mm -hmm. We happen to know a couple people and I'm very jealous of their Instagrams. They get to see the world and teach. So to Two, two of my loves. What exactly is an international? It's if you took a public school, like mine is a public school, there are public or private schools and just made it multilingual, bilingual, multilingual. A lot of tons of cities have them, whether it's like a French international school or German international school. Mine is a Swedish English international school. So every all of your lessons are taught either in Swedish or in English. So my music lessons, I teach in English. I've been picking up Swedish here and there, but it is not well enough to teach in Swedish. Yeah. International school. You're really living. I love how you just touched on it a little bit, but you really, you have this friend who you connected with on a fundamental level where both of your passions were aligned and you had dreamed about having something simple like teaching and having a balcony. <laughs> the balcony was important. It was very important. We needed an apartment with a balcony. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> but now you have it, right? Yeah. And it's funny, like you, you made sure that you stayed 
it didn't happen immediately. No, God, no. It took, had that took a few years. In your mind. It took a few years. What were some of the things you were doing in the interim? Because I think one thing that I like, I want to highlight continually for the faking fam is like your goals and your dreams are important and it's very important to have the vision of them, but it's not enough to just dream. Yeah, absolutely. You have to make you your plan. Yeah, for sure. Yes. But what were some aspects of your plan? Like, even if she had not gotten this opportunity mm-hmm. and, and cued you in, what were some of the things in your plan that you were working on? Well, first of all, I was very lucky that my best friend had found this job in Sweden because they were recruiting at her school. So that was like one big thing. A lot of, I think a lot of it is mostly planned. It's 80, 90% planned and then 10% luck that you end up with the right thing. So we're very lucky that we found uh, this thing. But the plan was that I was already researching different cities that were recruiting in the U.S. And I was going to these events where they were recruiting people. There's one in Boston. There is one in Vermont, of all places. And I was contacting alumni of my school and hoping to get a, my student teaching internship with them at their international schools. So I was trying to connect to all these people. And the, the luck part came when my best friend had found a job, moved to Sweden six months before I did. And then that was right at the time when they were finding new people for the next school year in August. So I was, yeah, a lot of plan and a little bit of luck in, in there. I love that. You, you remember, remember those words, fake and fam, like 90% plan, 10% luck. And that's so true. That's how my life has unfolded. It's just been like, oh, I don't know how things are going to work out, but I know what I can control. And that's practicing and making videos. Everything else is not up to me. It'll happen the way it needs to happen. Like you didn't, yeah. Please. Oh, you didn't know that like, didn't know. the things you were working on would influence me to take a totally different turn from classical music in a positive way. So all these things that you are doing, they influence other people. So all the things that you do influences people in ways that you don't even know. So I, I can 100%. take that as like a motto for life. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that look, we can even bring that back to this change and what you're trying to foster uh, in teaching these young kids is one of the things we talk about that we know is effective. And that seems to have more effect than anything you say to a, a kid is like modeling. Like that's what the research is starting to show is that you know, kids they just imitate what they see. Yeah. And I, there, were, there was a recent, I think it was a Freakonomics podcast episode or something where, where they had like an expert psychologist come on and he was doing research on how to get good at things and how to be a good parent and all this stuff. And his kids had a lot of grit. These kids had a lot of grit. And he's like, I didn't teach them that. He was like, I didn't. He's like, by the time they came out, I wasn't working hard at economics. I was crazy. But what they did see him work on was his golf game. So he woke up and he'd go at 5 a.m. and he'd work hard. And so the kids, they can't quite tell the difference between this work and play. They just saw him going out there and being very dedicated, practicing, working on a swing, taking lessons, doing the coachings, and just going out and doing something. And he just figured out, wait a minute, that's what that's where the kids were getting this from because they were determined to do their homework. I didn't teach them that. (laughs) I never did that. But they saw him modeling. It's amazing that you yourself, you're going out and you know how risky it is, how vulnerable it is to learn new things, to teach singing. That terrifies me. I'm not a singer. To, to play piano in front of people, if you're not a pianist, I'm not a pianist. So I can directly relate to that. But to just show that, hey, kids, it's okay 
to do these things. And like, I'm doing it. And if I can do it, you certainly can. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they love it. Let me, look, can I, can I, can I actually highlight exactly what the episode, cause I listened to the same episode. Let's hear it. It was Boy, actually on Freakonomics podcast, Freakonomics radio podcast, but it was an ex, it was an episode of people I mostly admire, which is hosted by Stephen Levitt, who's the co-author of Freakonomics. And it was featuring the psychologist and author of the book, Grit, Angela Duckworth. So. It was a great conversation. I think that's really important. It's a great episode for anybody to listen to. I fully believe in it. And I love that whole Freakonomics radio network because they have people I mostly admire. They have Somebody Breaks the Internet. I haven't listened to it yet, but it's a really great show. And uh, No Stupid Questions. No Stupid Questions. Uh, which is, I like that. No thought. Stupid Questions. <laughs> yes, listen to that one because that one's more psychology based, and it's Stephen Dubner who's the host of Freakonomics, and he co-hosts it with Angela Duckworth, who is a, a, a psychologist. I forget the university. I want to say it's University of Pennsylvania, but her book but is anyway. Grit she's amazing. Is super super viral. It was like the big, oh, it was yeah. the buzzword of, of that year. It came out. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Kaylee, I, I don't know if you're interested in talking about your college experience. What are some things that you you wish? you had gained from school but didn't and like what are some things that you gained from school that you would have never gotten from life i'm really curious about that dichotomy whoa that is a deep question but it has been on my mind a lot especially as a brand new teacher last this is my second year of teaching i think you learn a lot by doing and they've mentioned that a lot in university because you can only learn so much about everything music-wise, everything teaching-wise, everything classroom management-wise, and performing and playing at a top-level cellist on top of all that. That's a lot. So I think one thing that I didn't expect to learn from university would be adaptability, that you just have to adapt to whatever is coming to you. And I've come to realize that now, a few years out of university, like I... I had to just, I wasn't expecting to teach general music to such older students, but you just have to adapt. You just have to roll with it. You have to take those risks. You just have to throw in every tool in your toolbox and go for it. So that would be one thing that I didn't expect to learn. I think we all have things that we wish we had learned in university. There's plenty there and it's probably like a long list, but I think it's truly impossible to learn everything you can from a classroom because you do learn a lot from your own experience and by communicating with other people. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you the same question. What were things that you wish you had learned through your experience at Juilliard and your elementary school or elementary middle high school, like experience in music that you wish you could have had so that I want to take those ideas and pass them on to my students. For sure. I think one thing that I wish school had really really given me much more of is an understanding of the workflow of creating my own music yeah because i think what's really important as a musician is to have your own music is to have your own stuff that you can play that is yours that you own because we live in a capitalist society here in america unfortunately we're not socialist 
and we don't get government, <laughs> a lot of government. Sorry. What did I say? Switzerland? <laughs> My cough is not working. My cough is not working. Anyway, w- when we're in this capitalist system, you have to have products to sell to the market. And if you are a musician who can play an instrument really well, the only thing that you can bring to the market is your playing services. But that's limited to the amount of time. First of all, the amount of time you have available, it's limited to your ability to be in one place at one time for one event. It's very, your potential for earnings is limited and your possibilities of creating financial freedom which would allow you to spend more time on your art are incredibly bleak. So I think that giving people the opportunity, I wish school had taught us, and it's just something, if everybody knew how to do it, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it already. So I understand that, but like not teaching people the, how to obtain the means of production of their art and being able to disseminate that in a way that is uh, scalable is something I wish I'd learned. I think for me, and I I keep inserting this clause anytime it's time to praise or poo-poo on music school, (laughs) because it's true. We've, we've talked about this a number of times and everyone keeps wanting to insert things into school. Oh, they wish they had talked to me about business, but not made me waste time with calculus or I wish they had, me about physical like we're always adding stuff if you look at all of this research all of these books all of this self-help one of the problems is that it's constantly adding things if you followed all the guidelines of what would make your life better you would go okay, crazy. I gotta wake up. it would be awful you'd go insane it's like okay i gotta wake up i gotta brush my teeth not 30 minutes before i eat and then i gotta go do 12 push-ups and then i need to meditate <laughs> and then i gotta go exercise. that's how i live bro it's like how, when do you work oh wait the coffee's good for me oh wait now it's bad for me oh wait too much spinach yeah. oh, it kills good kills bad Salt's in the enemy and like you can go to the list and you never accomplish anything because it's so complicated we're always adding in stuff and what i've been more interested too is it's like we the hardest part is we got to decide what we're going to give up and balancing that with your goals. So with school, it's the same thing. Part of what made, I think, Juilliard successful for me is that there was less time in class as compared to a university. In a university, every class has a paper, regardless of if that class needs a paper. It's just a university requirement. You have woodwind methods and you're going to teach little kids woodwinds. You got a paper. Everything has a paper, regardless of if it needs a paper because of some random policy. Mm-hmm. And you're in school for a certain amount of credits because they need to fill this checklist and this checklist. But Juilliard, because it's not restricted by actually like the national standards of music, it's not accredited through one of these national, one of the main like music school things. Juilliard does not participate in that. They're like, no, we don't need to do this. None of that. Because they don't want people... They're like, we, we don't want to have to force students to do certain things that we don't think would actually help them. And so less time in school, as far as class goes, I thought was actually a benefit. It is a little easier for some of these Juilliard students to maybe not have as much school because often they're coming in there with a lot of schooling prior to arrival and a lot of training. It's okay. We can trust them a little bit. Even still, I think giving people the time in putting the time in your own hands. Hey, you need to practice. You need to do this thing. And it's on you to figure out how to do it. Yeah. I think that was one nice thing. So I don't necessarily know a 
what schools can do to keep adding without taking stuff away that might be valuable because they also know, hey, the moment you leave this building, you'll never learn about CounterPoint ever again. We know you're not going to read that book. Also, the book sucks. It can't teach you. So there's some fundamental, air quotes, archaic things that, for instance, as a composer, it's been one of the most valuable classes I've done. Ear training. It's really hard to learn outside of school. You need to be forced to do it. You need a mentor. You need to be able to devote the hours it takes to get good at that. And it's painful. Most people hate it. But that's one of those things that's left with me from Juilliard that it's been incredibly beneficial and I couldn't see myself getting that outside of class. So what do you give? What do you take? I'm not exactly sure. But the things that I think would be really valuable that I wish music schools would do is to foster community and then foster acceptance of non-musical things. That doesn't mean go yes. out and teach classes in non-music things. I'm paying for music school. School's not going to teach you everything. but there was this weird aura that anything outside of music school, of, of music, of classical music, is literally just not even talked about. It's, it doesn't exist. No one directly says, hey, don't go you know, work a summer job. Don't go do an internship somewhere. Go to music festival. No one kind of outright says it, but they don't even mention that it exists. It's like the real world is yeah. just completely detached from the classical music bubble. And it's disturbing because it turns out we all live in the real world. And the moment school well, ends, it's like culture shock. Yeah, it's, it's culture shock because we walk out there and it's, wait a minute, not everyone cares about classical music. <laughs> not everyone cares about resolving my leading tones. Like they don't, like they literally don't care. Yeah. yeah. It's, wait, parallel fists sound awesome. Come on. Pa what it's are power, power chords? Yeah, power power chords? It's, they're incredible. And there's all these other things. I just wish music school, they don't have to teach all these classes. They can't. It's not necessarily their responsibility. But I think in that program, a jobs board, internships, hey, letting people know the skills you're learning here, here's how they can help translate outside of music. And it's okay. You're not an out, outcast. You're not the oddball. You haven't failed. You're just using your skills in a different way. And yeah. that's the things I want to go to. The last bit, community, whatever you were going to do the last 15 minutes in that practice room is not as important as if you went and just hung out with someone for 15 minutes. When Drew and I go back and do talks for like career services and for some of these other people, one of the things I go in there, I'm just like, hey, guys, uh, go to the party. That's like my big, one of my big regrets. Whatever little piece you were up sweating on and trying to find that right note was way less important than if you had just gone out and done something fun and made friends. Because that piece, you're never going to remember it. That, that one extra hours on that one measure, that's not going to stand the test of time. But those friends, those connections, that's the rest of your life. Like yeah. Your life literally depends on them. Look at you. Make a great friend and you literally and flew you across the ocean. Just read it. Yeah. And live there. And you have a balcony. Yeah. Because of this, this friend. And you'll achieve all your dreams. Just go out and party. Yeah. But like, no, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree that you do need to make those connections. And I was actually going to ask you, like, how would you go about uh, networking in a new city? Because you have moved uh, a few times and I moved to a new city and my network is very small. I'm like with my teacher friends who are like all around my age at my school and I have my best friend who makes music. I'm in an orchestra, but I don't speak Swedish. So there's a language barrier there. How would you, how would, do you start networking in a new city when you don't have many or no connections at all? 
I, I would love to jump mm-hmm. on that, but I, I'll, can I just, before I answer that question, I, I wanted to like just piggyback a little bit off of what Trevor said. Cause I know I complain, I complain too much about how music school didn't give me what I wanted. It, de- it deserves it's, it though. It's-, it's not music school's fault. It can't be everything. And I will say on the record, and this is, I truly feel this, Juilliard was the best decision I've ever done for my career. Being around that many people who were that good at the art changed my perception of what I'm capable of. And for some people, it's toxic because it's toxic competition. But for me, I never looked mm-hmm. at anybody and said, I couldn't be like them. I looked at them and said, we're in the That's same awesome. place, so I must be capable of this. So it motivated me awesome. to continue to work and be worthy of it. Oh. Studio class. That's so good. Orchestra. You should have told me this when I was Shame. 18. <laughs> well, I mean, but that, that's the key to life, right? You ha- That's yeah. one of the core belief systems you must develop in this life is not that somebody's success takes away from you. It's that somebody's success is proof that you are also capable of it. But you also have to look at whether or not you're willing to put in that same amount of work whether or not you have the same look. I mean, yeah, like I can't look at LeBron and be like, I can dunk like LeBron. No, (laughs) he has very different physical attributes that allow him to do that. But when it comes to music and when it comes to the mind, I think we're all capable of many similar things. Now, your question was, can you remind me? I just, I wanted to say that was really important that I got that off. Yeah. How would you go about networking or creating your community? I think I want to take the word networking out of it. How would you go about creating your community in a brand new city where you don't know many or know people at all? Well, my method, because I moved out to LA and then a lot of people in the the gigs that I'm doing, they're looking at me, how long have you been here? And I try, I don't talk about it because they always get a sour look on their face. Man, I've been here for 18 years and it took me forever to get this gig. And I was like, I'm here for two. And the reason is I spent my first year and a half doing everything, meeting as many people as possible, understanding my value, right? Understanding my strengths Mm -hmm. and then doing my best to exhibit and share that value with as many people as possible. When it was in New York, the case of New York, how I was able to start gigging while I was still in Juilliard. There's a guy named Niles Luther who was, who, is a cellist and he used to make almost daily videos of his cello playing his beautiful cellist on Instagram. And he, Chloe Trevor, a guy named John Hannafin, another guy named Michael Cello and another guy who was a cellist named Mark Bassett. They all were putting videos up on Instagram. And so I was so inspired by that. that I was like, man, I don't see any violists out here doing this. Let me put up some videos of my playing, even though I'm <laughs> yeah. insecure. So I started doing that and I, yeah, that's how, that's what started that. And I connected with Niles Luther. And so he needed a place to stay because he was auditioning for MSM. So he stayed at my, unbeknownst to me at the time, but uh bed bug infested apartment where I shared it with, <laughs> it was a two bedroom with four dudes. Disgusting, but it was all I could afford at the time. He at stayed on the couch and he told me about this guy named David Burnett who shout out is like still one of like the most pivotal people in my life. He is, he's one of the co-founders of the West village quartet and he busked in the subways. He'd been doing it since the seventies and it's just been busking at grand central station times square. 
And he offered to put me in touch with David. And so he did. And I started busking with David weekly, multiple times a week. And through that, we would busk for three or four hours a day. Sometimes it was six. Sometimes we would busk all day. Most of the time it was just chump change, but it was being seen by people. People were dropping business cards. It was start, we started getting gigs. I met another cellist by the name of Eric Cooper, who then really took the busking to the next level. I started busking way more with Eric. Eric started doing lots of weddings and, 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 and corporate gigs and stuff like that. And so as I met Eric, I met other players. And as I met other players, those players understood my value as a violist. And because I was trying to be the best violist I could be, they saw the value in that they wanted to connect with me and put me on in other places. So that's how I started meeting more people who started referring me to studio gigs, who started referring me to to performances. And there, there would be contractors who would see me play and be like, oh, are you in town? I'm like, yeah, man, let me get your number. And that's how it would work. But it took years. It took years. It took a lot of free performances. It took a lot of performances for pizza. It took a lot of like just busking in the hot, sweaty subway. So, so what I would suggest for anybody, this is not just for you, Kaylee, but this is anybody in the faking fam. If you have value, if you're a teacher like Kaylee, teach after school programs, even if you're not getting paid, see a kid, mentor a kid, mentor a group of kids, do whatever you have to do to give your value to the community, whether there's a language barrier or not. And then over time, you'll see that because you're exhibiting value will come back to you in ways that you don't expect because people love connecting with people who make their communities better. That's just literally the way the world works. So Uh, if you try to be a better member of your community and that's how you build your community, right? And it's hard because everybody's value is a little different. What you are doing such a great job of is cultivating that introspection and that self-assessment within yourself in your students and they'll come to these conclusions and be like oh i can do this thing that nobody else can do let me do that for the community and then you'll realize that the networking just happens off that wow that was awesome i i really love the yeah whoo Take a moment for that to sink in. Do things that will benefit or do right by your community. I think that is so important, especially when you're starting out with a new community or no community. You have to break in there somehow. So why not start by like doing the positive things that that could build and grow your community? My best friend is actually moving uh, to Berlin to continue her teaching career there. So this is actually, I know, but it'll be okay. We are best friends a long distance. We can keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. But so I need to continue to build and grow my community. And I'm really lucky that I'm in an international school with a ton of people my age. And like my department works really well because we're all an arts department with textiles, woodcraft, cooking, art, music, all that. So we're we're a very creative bunch. uh, So it's really nice. So we can actually get our creative juices flowing. But like we're very connected in the teacher world and I'm very connected in the teacher world or in the international school teaching world. I need to get out of that. And I think especially if I'm putting in my value and putting in my effort to learning the language a lot more, I'm halfway through a level one course. I think just putting a little bit more 
uh, effort to the community around me, especially with the language. I think it'll be really beneficial there. That'll be a game changer for you. No doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind. And one thing that I would really do is identify which communities you want to connect with and then figure out how your strengths can contribute to that community for case in point. When I moved out to LA, it was because I wanted to be in the hip hop scene. So I was like, man, what can I do for hip hop? I don't know. I could write string parts. I could play strings or I could shoot video. I could take people's pictures. I could do this. I could do that. So like, just, it just takes a little bit of an audit of like your skills and and then figuring out what can I do for this community that I want to be a part of? That's not my natural. Yeah. And then do that. Yeah. I love that. And we now know how important community is. So obviously in our own personal lives and something we've talked about on the pod was just like you never know who the person is who's going to have the most impact on your life almost all my jobs it's never come through the best friend or someone who i've interacted with all the time it's a random person who i was just nice to or was a presence or they just remembered me Mm -hmm. by chance at that moment that's got me the gig it's never the person i think it would be be part of that yeah yeah, it's it's actually it's it's both difficult, but it's very simple. It's because of that, like just be nice. Like <laughs> you could be a good person, an interesting person. But we now know there's in our contacts list probably a hundred violinists we could call for the gig. I need a great violinist. There's a hundred I could call. Who are you gonna call? Who are you gonna call? <laughs> Classic movie holds up really well. It's still really funny. <laughs> like 40, 40, 41 years later, you're going to call someone you like. <laughs> Yeah. Like someone you want to be around. Okay, I got these 100. They can all do it. Who's going to do the job? But, you know, who's going to show up? Who's reliable? But really, there's still 10 people who are super reliable who could all lay it down. How do you choose? It's just it's someone you want to be with. Yeah. It's a friend. It's someone you'd, hey, I'd love to have this experience with them. And like that's just one of the distinguishing factors. That's who I want to be with. That's who I want to surround myself with people I enjoy being around. So uh, a big sticking point for me too is very difficult moving to LA. By teaching everywhere and doing all these things in New York, I had built up my tribe. But going somewhere new was difficult because I hadn't added value to any of them. And it's not purely transactional, but I just hadn't put in anything into the community. So why would the community really put anything into me? So it took me a long time to get to that point. But specifically... Speaking, we know how dangerous loneliness is now. The real enemy of the last two or three years has been like social media and like sitting too much, being sedentary is dangerous. You got to move a little. I think the new enemy uh, that we're going to be focusing on for the next few years is lonely. There's been a lot of studies show that it is better for you to smoke a cigarette and eat a burger with friends than to eat that salad alone, which is crazy. The value of community and interacting with people is very important. Why have we seen such a rise in suicide, heart disease, all these other negative things that we think should be getting better? A lot of our life is, in air quotes, getting better. Then why is why do we see these other aspects rising in such a negative way? Is that we have easier access to people than we ever have before, and yet there's something missing. Yeah. Yeah. We're reporting just these high levels of loneliness and that's extra difficult going into another country. So like now, what at least I've been hearing from people is that we need to take it seriously, just like we take exercise seriously. Because before, what is hanging out? What is friendship? 
It's the thing you do after the chores are done, after you do your job, after the kids go to sleep, after you've, you know, done your exercise. Uh, Friends is the side thing. It's the toss off. If you got time for it, you'll do it. Now it really needs to be part of the routine, interacting with people, fighting against that loneliness to, to literally save us, (laughs) to improve ourselves. That is just as important as eating healthy, walking in the sun and doing some exercise, hanging out with friends. It'll literally save your life. Yeah. And hanging out with friends outside of work, outside of all the other things, outside of whatever you're working on, whether it's like a side project, like doing something totally different, totally like other than what you would do. It gets your brain literally out of there, like that work-life balance. You got to find something that's different than everything you're doing. What they seem to be recommending too, because there was, of course, this is another, I can't remember the podcast, but there was another episode specifically about a journalist who was researching this loneliness epidemic. And so he set out with a mission on how to make friends. (laughs) And there's, I'm not uh, religious, but there's a really funny joke out there where it's like the most impressive miracle Jesus had was making 12 new friends in his 30s. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, we all know Hello, making new friends, look back at it. It's all oh, that's my childhood friend. That's the friend I made in, co- I made in college. Yeah. Everything beyond that just doesn't exist. It's so rare and it's weirdly taboo to try to ask friends. It feels desperate. They don't want you in your circle. Well, what do we do? And so this, this person went out and tried to research, well, what's gonna, what am I going to do? How are we going to solve this? So he tried to rekindle old friendships. And you wind up in different places of life. It doesn't always work. So that didn't quite pan out. He wrote about it. Uh, and then he tried the next aspect. Of, Let's forge new friendships. How am I going to do that? And he said he had just what you said. He had to, it was a risk. He had to put himself out there. He had to try and fail at making new friends. But out of that little experiment with just a handful of people, is like four new best friends. And he mentioned best friend is a tier. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a, a qualifier. It's not a category. It's a tier. You can have multiple ones that can come in and out of your life. It's okay. And in fact, encouraged. But the the solution for him and what I think Drew is leaning toward with this kind of community is activities, shared experience, location, like finding something, some common bond. That's what we often get from athletics or music performing that's who we're interacting with but when i was in la like friends just didn't happen when i started going to industry events when i started to go to different areas and like with the intention of i'm going there to literally just talk to other people <laughs> and see someone and get out of my room and not think about my job that's what paid off like i started each time i started to reappear they recognize you they're talking to you and so to some degree, it's use your own teaching on yourself. And and for all three of us, it's like taking the risk yeah. of trying to make a new friend and making it an important thing. This is a goal. I'm going to make two new friends or something like that. It is a metric. Make it happen. It'll save you. It'll make your life more enjoyable. And as we know, it can also improve our life and our careers. I was going to like piggyback off of that. Sweden has this concept of fika time, which is like your coffee break time. I love fika, but it's the whole concept of like you and the people you're around. You are getting yourselves away from work. You are like sitting down and like having conversations with each other over coffee and like it's set into your 
schedule. So you do not work at that time for 20 minutes, maybe do it like once or two or three times a day or whatever like big activity you're doing. You have FICA, you get to know people on a social level and not on a working level. And then they also have the same thing, but for like nightlife culture, which is after work. So you and your coworkers would go for and after work, you would go out to a pub, you would go out to a bar and you would just be casual and you would get the work out of your brain. And then from there, you can branch out and talk to all the other people that are in the area around you. You could go to the next table over and find out, oh, what do you guys do? Or you can go to the next table over there or go for a walk or get out of your space. And I think that's a thing that Sweden has done well with like getting the work-life balance down is that they have these cultural phenomenons in place of FICA and an afterwork of getting yourself out of that your like work space, whatever your work may be, physical, like mental, literal, and just like being a human again. Oh my God, being a person and talking to people and like having fun conversations that have no relation to what you're doing and you can be human to each other. And I think that is one of the benefits that I feel of living around here. And it's helped me make better, closer friends to these new people that I'm around. This is our fika. Yeah. This is our fika right here. Yeah, solid. So I, I appreciate your energy. Like I've learned so much from you today. I'm curious about you and your goals. Do you have any goals for five years into the future for your career? And if so, what are some things that you need to achieve your goals, but you don't currently have access to? Yeah, that is a big question because my big goal was to do what I'm doing now. So that was the thing that I was aiming for. So I'm now in the space where, okay, I'm doing the thing. I'm doing it really well. Am I ready to leave the thing yet and try something new or go for something totally different? And I'm going through a point right now where I'm actually signing my permanent contract. So I'm no longer on a two-year temporary contract that I can sign a permanent one. So for me right now, my, I guess, five-year goal is to continue this, to, I guess, grow my community, to get... Get good at Swedish, embrace orchestra again, get all these things back in my life and continue what I'm doing now because I'm doing it well, but I can do it better. And I'm not at a point in my life where I'm ready to change things drastically again. If I would, I think I would do a master's degree online, but I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. So my goal isn't big, but it's to keep doing what I'm doing and keep doing it well, I guess. Well, congrats too. For reaching an initial goal. Thank you. I did the thing. Continuing. Yeah, that's incredible. Most people don't even get that far. So it's very impressive. No, I was going to like bring this to a different topic of grad school, but go do your thing first. I just wanted to say it's, it feel it warms my heart because you're a listener of the podcast and you are achieving your dream. That was the dream of what we (laughs) wanted to do, Trevor and I. We wanted to talk about us like trying to pursue our dreams. And it's so cool that our listeners are doing the same thing, that our community is doing the same thing and they're, they're, they're dreaming. And then these dreams are coming to fruition and they're continually thinking about their further goals. And I yeah. just, I wanted to highlight that, congratulate you publicly. Thank you. Well, I listen to the pod twice a day, so it's definitely helped me. <laughs> That's incredible. But thanks again for coming through. And we're like, Thank, I've had a blast. This is so fun for me. Thank you so much. It's so fun to talk to the people <laughs> that like I listen to every day. But like I, you two exist within each other, but I don't exist in your world until now. So it's cool for me. 
and that's something we're trying to change. We're trying to figure this out because that's what's so unique about podcasts is we love for me and Drew, what we were talking about way back when we first started this, we're like, we love the format of podcasting. It's not restricted by time, like a TV interview. Mm -hmm. You don't have to come through to chill anything. It can be whatever you want. And the key thing was just like the intimacy of literally like hearing someone. It's literally like in the earbud, it's in your ear. And so all the podcasts I listen to, I literally feel like I know them. But I don't. They have no idea who <laughs> I am. Like, I don't even know. I don't know if you've experienced this too, but I listen to a lot of politics podcasts and I've seen listen to 538 and then a couple others. And once I saw like what they looked like in real life, it was like your favorite book. And then they cast the crew and you're like, wait, that doesn't look like. Doesn't look like Harry Potter or whatever it is. That's not what law should look like. It's like really weird because I feel like I know them, listen to them for years, but they don't know each other. And so that's one of the things just to let you know and everyone else that we're like actively trying to figure out because while we love talking and like openly thinking about these things, what we really like is conversations like this. Yeah. Like talking mm -hmm. with other people who were who've gone through amazing experiences like leaving the country getting that balcony, hitting their dreams, trying out new things. Like we, we really want to see who out there is, is part of this community like you are and trying to find ways to communicate with them. And this is baking fan features. It's just a small step towards that direction. One of our favorite steps, but we are actively working on that because the very end of this whole episode and every, everything else we've mentioned, like we've got to take risks. We got to model it. Yeah. We got to go through the journey. We got to overcome loneliness and like really foster community. So thank you for being uh, a part of this. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Before we let you go, did you have any more questions for us? Cause like, I remember we had briefly asked you. Yeah, I was going to ask about grad school specifically because it's not a thing that I haven't done. But if you have time, if you want to like discuss like your grad school experiences and also like when is the right time to do it? Because that would be a potential goal of mine if we were talking about uh, goals. Trevor, you want to hit yeah. that first? Yeah, so grad school is a very unique thing and it can be anything for anyone. And it's just what you will make of it. And so... For a lot of people, grad school is the right thing. And for a, I'd say a majority grad school might be the wrong thing. It all just depends on expectation setting and what is it going to, to give. Because depending on the place, depending on your place in life, that answer can be very different. And so for Drew and I, we hadn't really established anything. It was coming fresh out of undergrad, straight into grad school. There's some perks of that in that you're still fresh with the system. You're still somewhat not too rusty on theory and all the things that go into a normal music school experience. But one of the downsides is, of course, you have no life experience yet. <laughs> so you're doing further training on something that you actually don't know how it works out in the real world. And what I'd recommend in general, besides being more case-by-case -case specific, is just really assessing what am I expecting from this grad school and will my expectations meet this reality? Does it get me something new? So for me, I realized during my undergrad that I hadn't made enough friends. I wasn't getting access to the type of performers I needed to play my music. I realized in undergrad like how important being surrounded by what Drew said, the top people. My teacher told me, for your master's, you're not coming back here. You need to go somewhere where you get your butt kicked, where you'll be the worst person in the room. I went to a, a summer festival, and that's what inspired me to try to apply to these big schools. 
because I could see that I wasn't too far off from where they were. I could see myself in some of these people I admired who are my age. I want to be a part of that. And so then I set out on going to a school like Boone. So for me, that's what I needed. I wanted to be surrounded by the best. I wanted to be among them, learn with them, to have them be a part of my life. So I went in it with that mission, and that's what met my expectations, my reality. That's what I got from it. It wasn't about studying with a certain teacher or whatever I'd learn in class. I wanted to be surrounded by great people and great artists. But for others, it might not be the best course of action. It depends. I'm more often than not, and again, when I literally do like grad school audition coachings, thanks to Drew, and I've had some success with that. My number one thing is in the first session is to convince people out of grad school <laughs> because it's like you really want to weigh it against real life. I think it's like the most important thing. And it's good that you're experienced in real life. You've gone out and you've done it. For most people, there's this allure of grad school that it's, it's going to somehow solve the problems and I will be just this much better at music to get me this job that might not exist. Uh, it's like floating out there. Mm -hmm. And so they're always weighing grad schools against each other instead of weighing the idea of grad school against real life. Mm -hmm. So for me, the final thing on that pro-con list when it comes down to really making the decision is two more years of school going to teach me more or give me more access to something than two more years of real life. And you think of what two years has done to you. Yeah. You've got a balcony now. Think of how much you've learned. Now. You've got a balcony. <laughs> you, live, you moved across the ocean. Like, how much have you learned in this two years? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> You've done a ton. How much did you learn in two years of school? Maybe not as much as that. So I really would mm -hmm. weigh against what could I do outside of school without spending money? If it's, if it's in the States, spending lots of money and more loans. Can I get that same experience uh, without going through that? And if yeah. you can't, if you really need the access um, to these performers, if you're like adept at school, it's, I really need to practice. I know I can't quite get that when I'm teaching, I'm a little too busy or I need more networking. Paying for school is a great quick way to do that. But if you think, if there's a chance that you can get a lot of these other things without going through school, I think real life is an incredibly valuable master's degree. Two years of at Real Life Academy is very valuable. So that's what I'd be weighing out there. <laughs> if anyone tells you, oh, do this, it's like they're, they're wrong. Like they don't know. It's always person specific yeah. based on your goals. You only know you. Situation. Yeah. yeah. And what do you want out of it? Because I do meet too many people who are unhappy, particularly with doctorates, because it's a bigger sign up. It's even a higher level of stress commitment. But even with the master's. There's a lot of people who get upset with it, and it's that expectations versus reality. And so going in and knowing, will this serve me? That's the biggest thing. My perspective, it, it lines up perfectly with Trevor. I'm going to pretty much echo everything he said. And I really want to touch upon what it is that you want, because you have to understand that going back to grad school means you're going to be a student again, Yeah, which means you... You lose a lot of the benefits that you have as a non-student, as like a real person in the real world. I, I would say that, and I answered this question many years ago with my boy, Ken Kubota, and it was like choosing the school. The, the, the mm -hmm. grad school itself isn't important. It's the school you're going to go to. It's the reason you're going. It's the city you're going to be in. It's the potential to con make connections 
with the people that will help you do the things you want to do. And if you're already doing the things that you want to do right now, grad school is not going to make it any better. It's just going to be more student debt or it's just going to be more inevitable delay. Mm. Now, if you want to pivot and do something different, then that's a different conversation, right? And then it's important to go, the location is really important because if you're trying to pivot to a different industry, you need to make sure that the location you're going to will support that industry that you're pivoting toward. Now, your experience as a teacher, your experience in your undergraduate, they will make you very attractive to that school and it will make it easier for you to maybe apply and get accepted into a program. But if you're just going to go to grad school to do more of what you're already doing right now, that might not be a best allocation of your capital. And it's often not going to be any more effective than finding a mentor who will help you and guide you towards the goal that you're looking for. So I think that maybe investing in a mentor, should it be a life coach, should it be a course online, those are just as powerful, if not more, because then you don't have to change your location and you can continue to build. And I like what you said personally about really considering investing in, in learning Swedish. I think that that's one of the well, most here, so I should. underestimated. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I mean, one of the most underestimated things in the world is learning other languages. Yeah. And my kids know three or four of them and I'm making it through one. <sighs> yeah. It's worth it. It's worth it. So maybe that's your investment plan. Maybe yeah. that's your grad school is like learning uh-huh. this language because then you'll be able to interface with an entire country that a lot of the world wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And that makes you super valuable. So Yeah. No, that was awesome. That was amazing. That was, I think, exactly what I needed to hear because it's always been on my mind thinking that the thing that I'm doing right now, I love, but will I lose out on the experience or on the aspect of grad school? And will I ever get it back in my life? But I'm only 24, so I have time for that. I'll figure that out later. <laughs> you, you don't need grad school, bro. Come on. You ain't need yeah. no grad school. Yeah. Like, you're going to be okay. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. That's incredible. So thanks for coming through. And it was Thank you. such yeah. a pleasure to like meet you and hear your story. Thank you. And, it's been so nice uh, to meet you. Thank you for letting me come on the pod and having our FIFA time. Yeah, yeah. girl. And thank you being for, for being open. I, I know I did a cold call on the Instagram. And, and Faking Fam, yeah, keep your eyes peeled to our Instagram account if you're not following it. Faking Fam, I mean, Faking Nose Podcast on Instagram. We'll be asking you guys if you want to come on that channel. So if you want to come on here, like Kaylee, like we'll be asking, we'll be sending out the call periodically. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 would recommend. It's been so fun. So great. Absolutely. Drew and Trevor, put that on there. Throw yourself in there. Take a risk. Take a good risk and just try it. Couldn't have said it you better. You here first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll talk soon, okay? Yeah. Thank you. All right. Till next time. Till next time. Bye.